Please turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And I'll be reading verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. We Reformed people love the doctrine of justification, don't we? Its recovery helped spark the entire Reformation. Martin Luther says, The article of justification must be sounded in our ears incessantly because the frailty of our flesh will not permit us to take hold of it perfectly and to believe it with all our heart. In other words, this doctrine is so important. You need to be bombarded with it over and over. Kind of like those annoying TV commercials that are bombarding you over and over with those same catchy slogans. This evening, I'd like to bombard you with the glorious doctrine of justification and the outworkings of it in your life with the goal that it won't just be a propositional truth in your head, but that it would make its way from your head and into your heart. And to do this, we will first define justification, then move to the three outworkings, which are, one, peace with God, two, the path of joy, three, and the person of the Spirit, spending most of our time on the path of joy. So what is justification? What does it mean to be justified? Here's how Burkhoff defines the Greek verb translated justified in our text. He says, It is to declare legally that the demands of the law as a condition of life are fully satisfied with regard to a person. So Paul is using the word justified in our text legally as opposed to ethically. To be justified in a court of law means to be right or righteous before a judge. In 2020, a tragic incident occurred when a police officer entered what she thought was her own apartment, and then she shot and killed a man. She thought he was an intruder. And she had, in fact, committed manslaughter. And the court case is memorable because the brother of the victim, rather than be consumed with anger and rage, chose to forgive the woman 
that shot his brother. And when giving the impact statement in court, he told this woman that he desired the best for her, that he even hoped one day she would come to know the love of Christ. What a response. This response brought the judge to tears and completely captivated the world at the time. Now, why do you think that is? Why do you think our hearts melt when we hear these fascinating stories of forgiveness? Because the world as we know it is riddled with broken relationships, fractured friendships, fractured families. So when we get one instance of genuine reconciliation, we can't help but pause and think of the beauty when two parties who are on bad terms, resolve their issue, and get on good terms. We love it in our movies. We long for it in our families. How much more beautiful is it then when a holy, righteous God reconciles with sinners? How infinitely more glorious it is when God's enemies are made his friends. Paul in our text directs our attention to the most fractured relationship. The two parties that are on the worst terms. God and sinful man. So that our own hearts would melt at the beautiful story of a God who forgives those who don't deserve it. And he gives them a new life. But if perfect obedience is what God requires of us to have any kind of relationship with him, then we have a bit of a problem, don't we? Because who in here has perfectly kept God's law this past week? What about today? No, the law stops every mouth. It presents the world guilty before a holy God. And God's court of law is far stricter than our worldly courts. He does, he does not let criminals go scot-free like our worldly judges do sometimes. He's a righteous judge. But let's look at what verse 1 says. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Another has come. Another has come to fulfill the demands of the law on your behalf. Demands that you could not fulfill, and now he calls you to receive his work. Receive the perfect life that he lived on your behalf. The perfect life that you could not live. Receive the death that he died under the wrath of God in your place, in my place. The penalty that you and I deserve. And when you receive Christ, you have peace with God. 
When you are justified by God the judge, he begins to transform your life. And the first step in this transformation is knowing you have peace with God. This is the first outworking of justification by faith in our text. The implication is, since God has declared you righteous in his sight, because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, he and you are on good terms. What else can he be mad at you for? Sin that was dealt with at the cross. What else can he condemn you for? He condemned Christ in your place. So the natural result then of justification is peace with God. Which means you you no longer have to live as if God reluctantly forgave you. As if he really wanted to punish you. As if he really wanted to put you in hell. But somehow Jesus is holding back his father right now from smiting you down every time you sin. You don't have to live like that. You can live knowing you have peace with God. Knowing you are not condemned. Knowing you have peace with the Father. Because the Son, the Prince of Peace, endured the pain of the cross for you. There's a Savior for you today who will remove all your guilt. Give you his full, complete righteousness. The very righteousness of God himself. But the question is, will you receive it? Will you believe that this gift is for you? If you don't believe this gift is for you, then you are still at war with God. And you do not have peace with God. And even more than that, you will never experience true joy. The path of joy, which is the second outworking of justification and is where we'll spend most of our time. Now, when you are justified and are on good terms with God, you shall embark on a joyful journey to the promised land. There are two things that accompany this path of joy. The first being a pilgrim perspective. And the second, purposeful pain. Pilgrim perspective and purposeful pain. The more difficult part for many of you may not be the initial step of faith, but the journey of faith. Many of you you have grown up knowing salvation is by faith alone. Many of you have believed from a very young age. It's more what happens when life gets really, really hard. And maybe that's even an understatement. It's more what happens when there's a crisis event and you're thinking, well, in in my head I know that I'm not justified by my works, but why am I not experiencing this joy and peace that God has to offer me? The pressures of life are swarming around me and knocking me off balance. Where is the doctrine of justification then? The answer is is in verse 2. Let's look at what it says. By faith you have access into this grace 
in which you stand. And you rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So once you've been justified by faith, the thing that is going to get you through intense times is knowing it is an act of God's grace to justify you by faith. And this grace not only upholds you now, but gives you hope of experiencing the fullness of his grace and glory. You don't stand on your own. God's grace keeps you. He will hold you fast. He will give you a new perspective, a pilgrim perspective. You are a pilgrim today. Have you come to grips with that? That you have not arrived, but are on the way. And it is knowing where you are headed that will be what keeps you on the straight and narrow path. Where does your hope lie today? Israel, after experiencing the redemption of God, escaping Pharaoh and crossing through the Red Sea, looked forward to the promised land. And Moses includes this hope in Exodus 15 in the Song of Moses. Speaking of God's people, he says, You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Christian, this is you today. You've been redeemed, you've been justified, and now God has prepared a place for you. You are destined for the city whose builder is God himself, and whose presence is fullness of joy, at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. Dear Christian, God has justified you by his grace as a gift and given your life a new trajectory in which you rejoice in the hope of heaven. Your hope is no longer in this world, no longer in politics, no longer in your bank account. No, your hope is that one day you shall enter the glory of God. So pick up your eyes. Look, look up. Look heavenward. When I was younger, I probably thought about Christmas all year round, like many of you boys and girls. I could not wait to see the presents under the tree and have the milk and cookies. The only day I didn't think about Christmas was probably my birthday. But in the months leading up to Christmas, there was this great buildup of anticipation. You can imagine me counting down the days until finally Christmas Day arrives and I am happy and full of joy. Well, similarly... The hope of heaven ought to produce childlike anticipation in Christians. We should anticipate heaven like the little kid who can't wait for Christmas to come. The thought of being reunited with loved ones, perfect health, fellowship forever with Christ. These should all give us joy. Think of all the good things in this life that you wait for. Your first car, your first house 
your degree, when you retire, your wedding date, boys and girls, for you it's probably summer vacation. For some of the adults here, it's probably when your kids move out of the house. These are all good things, aren't they? But what typically happens when they finally arrive? You begin to think, well, is that it? I waited all this time and really this, this is it. It seems to be, that initial excitement seems to be gone with the wind. Christians of all people, though, should understand the hope of heaven is not like hoping for that first milestone in life, but it is a hope that is out of this world because it is out of this world. And shall our joy and hope of glory not exceed that of the fleeting treasures we wait for in this life, whose excitement eventually goes away? So with our eyes fixed on heaven, where God's glory is visibly manifest, as we continue in our text, we read verses 3 and 4, where Paul says, not only that, or not only do we rejoice in the hope of glory, but we rejoice in our suffering. Justification by faith guarantees your ticket to heaven, but it also transforms how you view suffering in this life. You now have a renewed relationship with a God who loves you. Which means all the pressures in your life come from the loving hand of this loving God. They are designed to prepare you for heaven. They aren't designed to hurt you, but to help you. To wean us from the world so that you would realize you are in this world, but not of it. That there is something greater waiting for you. Paul wants us to make good use of our suffering, knowing that it has a purpose. Which leads us to the second thing that accompanies the Christian's path of joy. Purposeful pain. Now notice what Paul isn't saying in verses 3 and 4. He's not saying that the suffering is what makes you rejoice. He's not saying that you need to be happy all the time, regardless of what happens, that there's never room for grief. No, he's saying that the effects of our suffering are reason to rejoice. What the suffering is producing and working in you, that is reason to rejoice. And that would be endurance, character, hope. Aren't these good things? The ability to endure upright, godly character, hope for the future. Well, these things come through suffering. The suffering you experience is what God uses to shape and mold you into a beautiful work of art. Like a potter is using their hands to mold and shape clay. God is using your trials to shape and mold you into the beautiful image of Christ. Think of it this way. Because you are united to Christ, because you are in Him and He in you, the path to heaven, though joyful, 
is a hard and painful one like it was for our Savior. Heaven will be a place full of those who suffered, were battle-tested, and pruned by the vine dresser. And shall you get there and have no scars or marks of your own? Even Christ himself is now bearing the literal scars and marks for his people on his body. But shall you get there and be the odd one out? Don't be mistaken. There is no crown of glory without first bearing the cross. The path to glory is through suffering. In college, I went through hard workouts and intense training to build my endurance for games. A runner might run miles and miles on a treadmill to prepare for a marathon. But athletes don't typically see the benefit of their training until after they've competed. And John Bunyan says, the Christian too must confess. It is hard to see the purpose in our wilderness wanderings until after they are over. Sometimes we won't know the positive effect of suffering until we've made it out the other side. But let us not wait until we're on the other side before realizing its purpose. We get so caught up or even surprised that we're um, going through suffering in the first place that we forget it's never intended, never intended to harm you, but to grow you. Your suffering is building godly character in you. It shows what we're made of. Are you the real deal? Or as Peter puts it, the genuineness of our faith is tested. Do you murmur and curse God when bad things happen? Do you blame others and get really angry? Or do you respond with love and patience, with the fruit of the Spirit? Are your trials having their intended effect, which is to build godly character in you and build in you hope for a better world? Or are they making you bitter? And if we do find ourselves bitter or shaking our fist at God, we should rightfully repent and look to Christ who will forgive you. And not only will he forgive you, but he, know, he knows how weak we are. He knows our weak frame because he took it on himself. He took it on himself. And he went through his own trials with meekness and humility, with the hope of bringing us, his people, to everlasting glory. While his trials were redemptive, ours are conducive to Christ's likeness. And we can have hope because if God upheld Christ through his wilderness wanderings, he will also uphold us until we reach the promised land. Now, what assurance can we have that he will? How can we know this hope will not put us to shame in this life or the next? How do we know this whole Christianity thing is not just made up? How do we know our hope is real? Because God put it there. Because God put it there. God the Spirit has been poured into our hearts. 
Justification is not a get-out-of-hell-free card, though we do escape the wrath of God. But even more than that, it is the entrance into life with God. This is the final outworking of justification we are looking at. We experience life with the person of the Spirit. Verse 4 says, The hope we have does not put us to shame. And verse 5 tells us why. It is because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It is as if Paul senses doubt in his audience. He's told them the glorious grace of God, grace that gives them reason to rejoice even in suffering. But suffering may cause us to doubt these great promises. And, this is, and isn't this our experience? We have trials at home, at work, wherever it may be. And you think, God, where are you? I need your help right now. You don't seem to be with me. And you're tempted to think God has forsaken you. Even Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, while in the slough of Despondé, very mucky swamp that makes his journey hard, he began to sink down in the mire. But who helps him out? Help. The character's name is help. And Paul is saying, if you're still doubting, those trials are inevitable. God the Spirit, God the Helper will help you through them. Our God is not a deistic God who winds up everything to then only step back and say, well, whatever happens, happens. No, our God draws near in love. And he is there for us whenever we need him. And we learn here in verse 5 that your hope is directly tied to this love of God in your heart. The hope you have to make it to the end, to enter glory, is because the love of God has been poured into your heart. Not your love to God, but your sense of God's love to you. That is what gives hope. Do you rejoice in hope of the glory of God today? Do you have this hope? Do you have hope that God is willing and able to sustain you through your trials. If you do, then it means God himself indwells your heart. And if you don't have this hope, if you are downtrodden and discouraged by all the difficulties that seem to be coming at you, then reflect on this love of God. What, was, what could have happened to you the, the worst thing that could have happened to you, what was supposed to happen to you, happened to Christ for you. You were supposed to be abandoned by God. You were supposed to be cut off forever. You were supposed to endure the wrath of God for your sin. But instead, Christ abandons his son. Christ cuts off his son. Christ, 
Christ endures the wrath of God in your place. And shall this not make your affliction seem light? Knowing he will never abandon you. He will never abandon you. Not when you sin. And not in your trials. I hope you see now that we prize the doctrine of justification for good reason. It is the very oil and fuel that should run our Christian lives. It isn't merely something that we find mentally stimulating to think about when we have downtime. But it really has the power to transform our lives. Even when we're facing intense difficulty. Justified believers have peace with God. Yes, you get a joyful path. But most importantly, above all, Paul saves the best for last. And God says, you get me. You get my Holy Spirit. And God will give you all these things If you would just believe, believe and they shall be yours. And dear believer, if your external trials show what you are made of, then the internal testimony of the Spirit will show you what you are made for. And that is life with God. And this life began when you placed your faith in Christ. It continues with life with the Spirit, and you have a taste of it by the Spirit, but one day it will be consummated in glory. And nothing in this world can separate you from this great love of God. Not your fears, not your anxiety, not depression, not your feelings of loneliness, nothing will stop God from bringing you to glory. And you may get roughed up along the way. But trust and believe that one day, when you lay eyes on Christ for the first time, when he wipes away the tears from your eyes, when he embraces you into his arms, you will say, It was worth it. It was all worth it. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. We were made for union and communion with you, but our sin has broken this fellowship, broken this communion. But you sent your son, and he lived the perfect life that we could not live for us. Dies the death that we deserve for us. And now your spirit works in our heart to believe in Christ. Father, may we never grow weary of this gospel. 
May we believe it with all that is in us. And then, may we live it out for the glory of Christ. In his name I pray, amen.